Good evening, and welcome to episode 82, episode 82 of the Political Mike podcast, an elect, a midterm election like no other. The first national election after the January 6th insurrection on the Capitol and the undermining of the 2020 election results. The stakes couldn't be higher as this midterm election will change the landscape of American politics for at least another 20 years. Tonight, Americans in key election battleground states will decide who will run the 2024 election vote in their states, choosing from a state of candidates that include Republicans who back former President Donald Trump's false claim that he won in 2020. In 30 of the country's 50 states, so-called election deniers are candidates for at least one of the state's positions overseeing elections, governor, secretary of state, or attorney general, according to a nonprofit advocacy group, States United Action. The high stakes of this election in the United States comes just days after Brazil, a 34-year-old democracy, held its own election in a high-stakes environment in which De Silva, a former two-term president, received 50.9% of the vote compared to 49.1% for Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro, age 67, a populist in the mold of former U.S. President Donald Trump, served as an army captain during Brazil's military dictatorship that lasted from 1964 to 1985, and he repeatedly challenged the legitimacy of the election and the reliability of Brazil's electronic voting machines and hinted that he might not accept the results if he lost. Tonight's midterm elections also take place just days after Israel's fifth parliamentary election in four years, in which long-serving Israel uh, leader Benjamin Netanyahu is returning to the post of prime minister for the third time as he is positioned to form a, a far-right governing coalition after his conservative bloc won a majority in this week's uh, in, in that week's uh, national election. According to 538's final forecast, Republicans have an 84 in 100 chance of taking control of the House of Representatives and Democrats just a 16 out of 100 chance of retaining control of the House. When we're looking at the Senate, 538 also gives Republicans a, 58, a 59 out of 100 chance of taking back the Senate, while Democrats are given a 41 in 100 chance of keeping the Senate. Here to help me make sense of this high stakes and very historic election, our group of distinguished uh, scholars who are no guests to the political mic have had them all they don't need an introduction, but for the sake of it, I'll give a brief one. We've got Dr. Deborah Blaine coming on tonight. She has practiced medicine for over 30 years and watched the changes that have turned patients into customers and medicine into an industry whose sole objective is profit. It inspired her to write her first book, Code Blue, The Other End of the uh, Stethoscope, because she wanted to share the challenges doctors face when trying to provide good standard of care treatment to uh, patients. She said that our hands are tied at so many turns by insurance companies, the pharmaceutical industry, and the massive corporations that have swallowed up medical practices. We're going to be joined by Dr. Blaine shortly tonight. We also have Professor Fred Cook, uh, who represents a wide range of clients in the areas of government relations, municipal law, and corporate and land use matters. Uh, since 1986, Professor Cook has served as an adjunct professor of law at Howard University School of Law. He's also a member of the Board of Governors of the DC uh, Bar. And as she's, he's also a member of the DC Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure. We also have Zach Tolan, who is a practicing attorney and recent graduate of Howard University School of Law. Ms. Alasia Bukal will be with us tonight. She's a proud elementary educator and equity fellow in the Baltimore City Public Schools District. She's also the CEO and founder of Forward Advising Center, where she provides academic assistance uh, towards post-secondary attainment. And she's also an education and empowerment content creator. Nate Honore, a graduate of Quinnipiac University School of Law, Jerry Ford, who's a private equity and MNA associate at Sidley and Austin LLP, 
Um, he also, before law school, uh, hosted a daily ra radio talk show on KJOZ 88.0 AM in Texas, and he has made numerous television appearances on Fox 26 News and KHOU 11 as a political commentator. Israel Abraham, a recent graduate of Howard Law and also an associate at a law firm in Chicago, and Tia Toombs, who uh, is an Oakland University student who majored in pre-law. She is also the young advocate and uh, leader in her community and served as the 28th Miss Oakland University. Such a panel. <laughs> so without further ado, I want to just dive right in, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I want to open up the discussion by asking you, being that you know the 538 numbers are what they are, Republicans apparently, according to these polling, uh, are teed up to become uh, to, 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 take in, to take charge of the House. Now, keep in mind what, what's at stake here. The Republicans have promised that if they take the majority, uh, if they win the majority in the House, they will end the January 6th committee. They would launch a myriad of investigations into President uh, Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. They would put a screeching halt to his legislative uh, agenda, and they would impeach President Biden. If the Democrats keep their majority, they promise to make codifying Roe versus Wade their top legislative priority in the new session of Congress, and there's also hopes and optimism about finally getting something done from voting rights. So in your view, anyone can jump in. Um, who did a better job at addressing the issues most Americans are concerned about this election cycle? Was it the, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party? Uh, I would probably say the Republican Party did a better job as far as I can tell on some issues. On, on Can everyone hear me okay? Sorry, I've been having a little bit of sound issue. Okay. Uh, I would say mainly on the issues of crime and um, the economy, I would give the, the Republicans a bit of an edge because you had the Democrats that was trying to push through tr more trillions of dollars of fiscal policy when we had r record inflation of more than a century. And thankful to Senator Joe Manchin, who warded off the Democrats during that time, that, that didn't get passed and it didn't exacerbate the the issue that the inflation issue and on crime um i think you just seen the democratic party just come off as extremely weak on that particular crucial issue for voters um and i can get into the reasons for why but i just want to kind of i think those are the two issues that i think and maybe the republicans haven't they've done a lot of things culturally and I think they've done some things to pause in the conversation as well as Democrats, but as far as on those two issues that really, I think, inspire most voters, the Republicans will have it. That's, that's kind of interesting. Not not the way I see it, but that's interesting. Um, I think the the issue of crime is a fabrication. It is a, is, a, is a trope that the Republicans use again and again and again. And it's not borne out by the reality of what's on the ground. Um, this is not a crime-ridden nation. There is more crime now than there was last year, maybe, and more crime than there was uh, some other point in history. But this is not a, a particularly high level of crime in the United States of America. Uh, you know, I, I've lived through much higher crime rates than, than exist now. And crime really still isn't a problem for most citizens. Um, but, the, but, 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 the, but the Republicans talk about crime as though criminals were standing outside your door waiting to break into your house and harm you and steal everything you have, which is not the reality that, that the overwhelming majority of Americans live in. They don't have, they don't want to solve crime. What they want is to keep the American public afraid of crime. They have no solutions. 
what they talk about is fear. And the same thing on inflation. Inflation is not caused, was not caused by the, by the Democrats' so-called uh, reinvestment program. Uh, Donald Trump's and the Republicans' tax cut is a much bigger cause of inflation in the United States. The defense of corporate America is a much bigger issue for inflation. 54% of the inflation that exists in this country today is a function of corporate profits, not, not inherently high prices. And inflation exists around the planet. It's not just in the United States. But I will agree with you that the, that the Republicans have done a much better job of selling this fear, but not talking about any solutions. And if that makes a difference to people, then I guess they win. I think that people ought to be a bit more thoughtful and look at what is actually being done and vote that way, as opposed to let's throw these rascals out and bring us some rascals who have no solution whatsoever. In the history of the United States, the Democrats have done a much better job of managing the economy than the Republicans, except that's not the perception in the marketplace. It's insane. I think it depends on who is actually on, you know, what we're considering to be the most important issues to voters. Uh, early exit polling from CNN has the economy at number one at around 32% and abortion at number two at about 27%. So on abortion, easily that's Democrats. Remember that they uh, ran up the numbers very big in the summer over abortion. Democrats won special elections in upstate New York and in Alaska, largely because of abortion. Uh, now there, uh, there has been a kind of distillation between abortion and uh, the economy in the minds of many voters, and that's partially the fault of Democrats for not making it clear that these two issues are linked. You can't have economic freedom if you don't have freedom to make your own personal decisions. But the fact that Joe Biden is still underwater and has been for 10 years, and we're looking at an election that is effectively a coin flip either way shows that Democrats haven't been as bad at storytelling as they have been in the past. So I agree with Dr. Cook. I think that Republicans are very good at um, firing up their base with fear mongering. Um, and Democrat, Democrats this year, they are really good at, um, you know, their, their message is we're going to fight for your freedoms. But the way that I see it is that both sides can't really seem to get across to swing voters right now. Something that I hear often um, from swing voters that are being polled is that both sides are so extreme and um, both sides are, you know, really polarized right now. And um, I don't really think that either side have gotten across because their agendas are just so different. I th really think that it could go either way at this point. Yeah, Mike, um, you know, the Democrats came into this election this year at a, you know, just major disadvantage historically because of, uh, you know, the fact that this is a midterm election when, you know, the Democrats are in power. And historically, when the power, the party that's in power uh, after those first two years, that first midterm, um, they, they usually are taking uh, a very, you know, like, um, you know, having a tough, tough night during that midterm. Uh, you know, you saw that in 94, you saw that, you know, during the Obama administration, I think the only outlier was George W. Bush in uh, 2004 for, um, you know, obvious reasons, um, considering, you know, the war at the time. Um, but, you know, the fact that, like, you know, Nathan said earlier, it's a coin flip. And the fact that this is a coin flip, um, says how strong I think the Democrats has been, you know, in their messaging right now. 
um, because, you know, this is not supposed to be a corn flip. This is supposed to be a time where the Republicans make way, they take over and you know, take back the House, um, maybe take back the Senate. Uh, but the fact that this is uh, going to be a nail biter, right, there's a good possibility that the Democrats will keep the Senate. Um, that shows that, you know, the, the Democrats have done well with their messaging. Um, you know, when you're talking about the Roe v. Wade um, being overturned, when you uh, look at, you know, Joe Biden with the student loan uh, forgiveness, you know, he still didn't, you know, pass some of his major landmark legislation that he was aiming for. Um, you know, but I think um, Democrats have done a great job at, at explaining kind of reasons why. Right. Like, you know, we're in power. Like Democrats are in power, the House and the Senate. But there's a very small majority. And even if the Democrats tonight lose, uh, you know, in one of these two houses is going to be a, a very slim by slim margin anyway. Uh, so I, I think it's important, you know, that uh, we continue to talk about, uh, you know, some of the accomplishments of the you know Biden administration and Democratic Party at this time. Um, but I do kind of want to push back on this discussion about crime not being a major issue. I think we're going to see, uh, especially in like the state of New York, you're going to see some Democratic um, lawmakers who are going to have a very tough time because of this crime issue. Now, that is not going to be the same story across the nation, right? So I don't think every city crime is going to be such a big deal. But you're seeing right now in the polling in New York, the governor situation, where Joe Biden had to come down, um, you know, I think a couple of days ago to campaign with the uh, candidate. Uh, one of the reasons why the Republicans are doing well in that deep blue state is because of this issue of crime. So I think Democrats need to take a look at this and make sure that we are messaging up going forward on, and how to deal with this issue of crime moving forward. I I know, in New York, actually. What, I can what just... crime are you talking about? In, in, in the 10 states in the United States where the crime rate is the highest, eight of those states are run by so-called Republicans. So, so where is the Republican agenda to address crime? Crime, the crime rate in New York City is lower now than it was when Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York City. I live in Chicago. There are, there are people getting murdered day in and day out in Chicago. You have King Griffith, who's who the, one of the, the manager of one of the largest head funds in the world, specifically cite Chicago Democratic Grand City for its crime as his reason for leaving. So this, this is an I, asshole who supports, he, this is an asshole who supports Ron DeSantis. So don't cite but, him but, as, as an authority. I agree with you. There he's, he, 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 runs a, he runs one of the largest hedge funds in the world and he cited crime in Chicago. And, so it, you may want to do, like this, write him that, off for a one decision, but that but, but, means but, something. But, but, but no, but the point I'm making is don't cite a wealthy person as an authority. I cited a no. business owner of one of the largest no, no, hedge no, no, funds no, no, in no, the no. world. You're, you're not He's hearing. A the, the, the University you're of Chicago hearing. named their economics departments after this man, and everyone wants that to That just means he signed people. a fat check. It doesn't necessarily no, make him an authority. No, you guys realize the logical fallacy of writing someone off because there's a billionaire? Addresses no, 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 no. Come no, no, at no. it. The logical fallacy is to give them credibility because they no, have a lot of money. To write no one is saying the fact that he ran one of the largest hedge funds in the world. As an authority only because he has that money. It's the same uh, logic that would say, well, Donald Trump, when he says something, whatever he's saying must have authority behind Ken it because Griffith, he had Ken money. Griffith, Ken, Ken Griffith, Griffith wasn't born with money. The... Ken Griffith was an entrepreneur in the United States of America. You, you all are gumping a... Yeah. Me. Elon you Musk also was no, no, you guys are categorizing uh, this individual was, um, because he's a millionaire in the box with all of the millionaires. Guys, this, guys, Deborah's trying to speak, please. 
that let, doesn't mean there authorities on what the world should be like. So can I just say, so I live in New York and I think that one of the crime issues that Hochul is facing is the fact that is the, the whole thing with bail reform. Bail reform backfired. Okay. It was, it was this program to, um, to not make, uh, criminals pay bail, they should be let go and then go free. And it backfired because a lot of those people went out and committed more crimes. And so um, it, I, I think that it was not all of them, but I think that that gave the Republicans ammunition. And unfortunately, what happens, I think, in a midterm election or in any election is every party wants to blame the other one. And the party that's in power, if there's a situation that exists, then whoever is in power at the time must be to blame for it. And without looking any further than what happened yesterday and not understanding how these the situation came to be over time and that, you know, I mean, so, you know, Joe Biden, the per I don't think there's a human being on this planet that could have stepped into the presidency at this point and and done what people would consider to be a good job. I think it was an impossible job just trying to pick up where the country was. And and especially now, everybody is fighting with every listen to us right here. OK, we're we're not even like having a, you know, like a, um, a repartee. One person speaks, the other person listens. You know, it's just the emotions are so high. And it's a really scary thing for me that every you know that that people are voting their emotions and not thinking things through. And that's, you know, and so I believe that the Republicans are using fear as a motivator. Now, that doesn't mean everything they say is wrong, but that they're I think that they're using that emotion to get their point across, which means they're not they don't need a point. They just need to scare you. And I think that the Democrats were not as conscientious about, you know, laying out, you know, I, I don't want to say in a calm way, because it's really difficult in this in this milieu to be able to say things rationally and have people listen. I just, you know, I was just looking just before I came up here, um, there's um, a thing from the Washington Post popped up on my, on my tablet and it says, will the GOP retake Congress? Will election deniers gain power? Spend election night with the Post for live results and analysis. Is this news or is this a drama on television? I mean, it's not, this is like, this is what we're subjected to constantly is it's not about what's really, it's not about facts anymore. It's about having people subscribe to your media you know, organization. It's about making it really interesting. And so the facts get lost and the people get lost. And it's, you know, it's a scary, it's a scary time, I think, for everyone. And, and before we jump on, um, <laughs> before we continue. You know, I was just listening to just as before the polls were closing, their folks there over 42 million people. I think someone mentioned it. You know, this is record uh, breaking numbers that we're seeing in terms of voter turnout. Over 42 million people voted already before the polls shut down today. Um, and so this, they were saying this is actually shattering 2018 records. Right. In addition to that, CNN had a show up, up, about an hour or two ago where they revealed that 54 percent compared to 44 percent of Americans say that the Republican Party is too extreme. However, on that same note, those same the same majority of Americans trust the Republican Party when it comes down to uh, addressing inflation, addressing crime like we've been discussing, the immigration uh, crisis at the border, uh, and the economy overall. So what is this discrepancy? Why is there a discrepancy between the, American, the majority of Americans saying that this party is too extreme, yet they're still willing to give them power to address issues like 
inflation. Anyone? Money. Storytelling discipline. Money is. is, is uh, uh, sorry, Nathan. The GOP has better storytelling discipline, right? They had their five points way early on, and they've been, you know, hitting those five points, you know, five being an arbitrary number, not a legitimate number, but they've been hitting those points every opportunity they get, every question they get. The uh, candidates and their circuits have been able to turn, you know, every question into, you know, Joe Biden's inflation and Joe Biden's crime wave. Um, you know, we under, the GOP hasn't actually put forward a plan to stop inflation, right? It's the same with Obamacare, right? They have been talking for years about repealing and replace Obamacare, never mentioned what they were going to replace it with. And when they actually had the opportunity to do so, they fell flat on their faces. The UK is, you know, in the middle of a year of four emperors because, you know, the previous prime minister tried to pass the GOP financial platform and nearly bankrupted the country, you know, but there hasn't been that same ability on the democratic side uh, or the same media infrastructure, to be completely honest, to be able to get people on and continuously say, you know, they're not right. And their, you know, reckless ideas are going to, you know, cause, you know, Armageddon effectively. The Republicans have been much more consistent in their ability to say that. Well, why haven't the Democrats forced the, the Republicans to answer? Like I was looking at U.S. Capitol Police data. They said that in the first three months of this year alone, the U.S. Capitol Police have opened roughly 1,820 cases of threats against federal lawmakers, right? And that's in addition to what we saw when a gentleman in Ohio bought a nail gun to the FBI headquarters uh, in the aftermath of the search at Mar-a-Lago. That's in the aftermath of January 6th. Uh, that's in the aftermath of you know this gentleman sending uh, uh, bombs to the CNN headquarters to President Obama's house and place of residence to the Clinton's place of residence and George Soros. Why is it that the Democrats are letting them control the narrative on crime? And it seems as if the majority of like look at I mean the people doing these taking these actions against the institutions that we we know as you know the federal government institutions they're in alignment with um, trying to overturn what they see as an attack on the country as they know it. They see this as an illegitimate presidency. They see it as them doing the will of their leader, their fearless leader, Donald Trump. Why haven't the Democrats charged them uh, with supporting and even and, you know, letting these things go and not looking for accountability? Yeah, I, I, you know, Mike, I, I don't know if this is an issue of the, the parties, like Democratic or Republican Party. I think when you're talking about, you know, this, um, you know, this information uh, situation, like we talked earlier about how the Washington Post um, were like kind of promoting the election tonight. Right. So, you know, a lot of this um, anger and these narratives are, are actually just being promoted through, you know, your media company, your Fox News or even through your social medias. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think people are a lot more uh, angry uh, today and a lot more aggressive. I think like Professor Cook, like, you know, I, I agree with you when you, you know, brought forth the data, right? The data says, you know, the crime rates are lower than it was, you know, like Not lower. years ago in, uh, you know, in, in New York, in New York City or, 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 you know, but the thing is people aren't looking for, you know, uh, the facts or the data, right? They're, they're, they're reacting off of what they see on their television in the evening or what they read on their news feed, um, you know, or what that um, radio host is, is is yelling at them and telling them about what is happening. Like there's a caravan coming from, you know, Latin America, right? L like none of that is, is true, but like that is what people are gonna believe, right? So when we talk about the situation like in New York City, you know, that is what people are feeling 
um, if it's, you know, there any merit to it or not, it, it doesn't really matter. It's about the narrative that's being pushed. So I think the, the question really is like, how, you know, will the Democratic Party kind of push back on that, right? And kind of, you know, control that narrative or, or push back on some of these false narratives? Because look, we might take a hit like, you know, during this election um, because of, you know, some of these narratives that are being pushed throughout, you know, your social medias and your, your news uh, agencies. Yeah, but if, but if you believe facts matter, it's incumbent upon all of us, educated, relatively competent human beings, to talk about the facts. It, it's, it's not incumbent upon us to promote the so-called Democratic Party or the Republican Party agenda. Those agendas change from time to time, and those agendas, quite frankly, don't have much to do with people who look like us as a, as a general proposition. But, but if facts matter, then it's incumbent upon us to talk about facts and, and not get caught up in the emotion. It, it's incumbent upon us also not to, not to let media narratives drive our facts. So, so the media is not innocent in this either. It, it's not as though the media was this impartial arbiter and presenter of information. They drive agendas as well. And, and that's fine as long as you understand that as a consumer of what the media is putting out there. And it's incumbent upon us to talk to our friends, neighbors, family, whatever, and try to drive factual discussions. Easy, not easy at all. But, it, but that's, that's one of the tasks that we have. Those of you who went to the Harvard University School of Law know that that's your social engineering obligation. So, 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 yeah, we got to try to drive the facts. And that's why I keep shaking my head. And, and, and I'm not attacking you, Ish. I'm saying that when you say something to me that's, that has as its premise a wealthy guy, a wealthy guy may know a lot. A wealthy guy may not know anything. We in this society get oftentimes get way too confused about associating an accumulation of wealth with some kind of virtue. Those are two different things. And, and, and I don't know this gentleman. I don't, I don't know whether he knows. I, I, I don't know whether he knows what he's thinking about or not. I tend to think in my experience with very wealthy people who have, who have created businesses, those are hard jobs. And he has, he has done a lot of work. And he doesn't have time to become an expert in crime because he's running a multi-billion dollar business. And, and I get that. So all I'm saying is his personal experience is his personal experience. But it shouldn't necessarily be used as a template for us to think about, to see the world through his eyes. He may be right, he may be wrong, but, but it's, not, it's, it's not because he's wealthy. So Professor Cook. Sorry, um, if I could just respond to, to what Dr. Cook was, was addressing towards me really quickly. And I, I, and I would agree with that. And that's why I wasn't trying to cite his wealth. I was trying to cite the fact that this was an individual who had his headquarters, I believe Citadel is the name of, of the hedge fund, was headquartered in, in Chicago, in, in, in a major financial district of the world. And he, as the, the, the leader of that business, decided to make a decision. And, and that's... And, and tried to make a decision to move that business to Miami because he cited things such as like packs of, of you know, of youth running downtown, beating up people, robbing people and, and the frequency at which it happened. Now, life in the big city, not to make small light of that, but Chicago is a massive city. And, and to your point, statistically, like looking at the population and the number of incidents of crime, it probably is somewhat still relatively low. But as someone who lives in Chicago, 
it you get the sense of violence on the streets. You you get the sense of not being safe at times walking downtown, of walking in certain neighborhoods. That's very real to a lot of people here. And I think that's what Jerry was citing to earlier. So I wasn't citing, but King Griffin was just an example. There's an entire argument to be made behind why I think that crime is a legitimate issue that that Democrats are being are being soft on and it's and and we can get into that because it's a complicated position but I'll 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 leave it to, to Deborah now but I just want to I think that's your reality because you live mm. in Chicago and it's so population heavy it's so dense that like you said the crime to population ratio is a lot higher to where somewhere where I live I live downtown in my city in Florida mm. I don't experience crime in the same way that you might so if somebody were to ask me um, how is the is crime an issue for you? How is crime, you know, is that something that you're worried about? I'm going to say no, because it's uh -huh. suburban around here. That's not something that I worry about. And so it's all based on the reality that, you know, you experience every day. So like, like in New York, there's so many people there, half a billion people, that of course you're going to experience some type of crime. But to say that, you know, it's, you know, omnipresent, in the entire country. Said that. I mean, that's that was the kind of vibe that we got. I mean, I, like okay, <laughs> vibe, okay. Like, I'm not, don't, please don't don't attach that to what I said because of a vibe. I mean, you, I were just saying, don't want that you were saying that crime is a is a big issue, and that's it is. A lot of us. I, I didn't I didn't say it was omnipresent, as in a present everywhere at all times. That I think that was just an exaggeration that I want to. When correct. we talk yeah, about the story, oh, sorry to continue. Hold on, hold on, let Doctor Blaine, Doctor Blaine, you're gonna come in. Dr. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So I was just wanted to address what Dr. Cook was saying, because um, in saying how it's incumbent upon us to look at the facts and to have our friends look at the facts. And and I, I agree with you a thousand percent. And it's a very noble desire and, and thing to be striven for. And I think that we used to be better at that as a population. But I mean, I think we need to look at not the world as we want it to be in, in certain cases, but the world as we find it and then work with that. And unfortunately, um, the world that I'm seeing in the political venue is that people are not thinking things out rationally, you know, by and let's put it this way. There's a significant percentage Why? of the population that is not thinking with their minds. They're thinking with their emotions. They're not really thinking. And so I think it's really important to find a way to reach those people because talking to them isn't going to help they're not they're not open to that and so i think that's our real challenge is to get through on a level that they're able to empathize with somehow and it's going to have to be emotional it's going to it has to touch them emotionally because you know it's just not working <clears throat> the other way and i don't know and i i think the democratic party has done a lot to damage that the fact-based discussions that you and dr cook are longing for because when I was at Howard University, and not to call out, my, I love my alma mater, and I think they do a tremendous amount of good in the world, far more than any and negative. But there was a professor in a class full of students where she was getting paid a tuition, said that women aren't isn't aren't the only gender that can have children, and as, as and I just started to ask her to, to to cite her research, and I'm and I'm only bringing it up to say that you the Democratic Party decides 
truth in a way that Falco would call power knowledge. It's only knowledge because they have the power of the society. And I'm not making any qualitative judgments about, I'm, I don't, I'm not making any qualitative judgments about whether that is a correct or incorrect statement. I'm saying it was made in a law classroom as if it was a, as a qualitative but statement. Did you, so, did you and, have and, okay, yeah, yeah, please. Due to her? Huh? Did you, did she you was a teacher in a classroom talking to students she and she spoke at something. Gender is a, is a social construct. So we were in a law class about constitutional law. What she was trying to teach. It, well, it, if we're talking constitutional law, gender is a protected class under, you know, constitutional analysis. But mm -hmm. speaking earlier to what we were talking about, crime and storytelling, and what Professor Cook said earlier about you know, That's an example of a larger issue of Democrats dictating knowledge based on the power that they control in the culture. That's all that was. It's a postmodernist idea. And how does she get to be emblematic of Democrats, Ish? Because that, that position is, is sympathized a lot with the Democrat, with the far left and extreme of the Democratic Party, to, in my estimation. I think because there's a well, lot of also, also recognized in the medical community, the wider medical community and the psychological community, because now that we're in the year 2022, uh, the general medical and psychological community no longer identifies gender dysmorphia or gender dysphoria as a medical uh, or a, a psychological condition. Mm. It recognizes it as a fallout of uh, social constructs that have lasted for a, hundred, a few hundred years where people who are born one, genetically one way are assigned a particular gender. And as Tia mentioned, gender is a construct. There has never been a set list of genders uh, all sorts of different communities throughout all of history have had several different definitions of what gender is in multiple different uh, numbers, not just one or two, male, female, uh, man, woman, but a whole slew mm. in between. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah, I understand. And I, I understand that it's a, using like cultural authority to say what something is. I, and I, I, I get where you're coming from that, you know, you were uncomfortable mm. with the way she just kind of said that as a fact to you. Right. Into the class because because it seems but, it seems to be like a, it, might, it seems to someone, be being decided. If someone were to say the exact opposite and say, "Well, there are two genders. That's just the way things are." Democrats are trying to change things. No, there are currently the majority of the society we are currently living in identifies two genders, but historically that's just not been the case. So what was really going on is that there are social conservatives who are saying that the truth is there are two genders, and other people are changing that. Uh, whereas it's truly, it's just an ongoing experience of what the definition of gender is. Let's, but, let's, but like, that's going to be central to having fact-based conversations, though, because that's where the line is. That's where the that's where the cutting edge is. So if, I would love to hear Doctor. I'm, I'm not sure. Doctor, I would love to hear Deborah's insight if we get there. But yeah, hold on. Let's pull things closer to this election. Um, we <laughs> talked about crime. Um, in addition to that, I'm sorry, Mom, can I just can I just step in real quick? Uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, since you're bringing up crime again, I wanted to uh, just um, respond to something uh, Dr. Blaine said earlier. Uh, uh, so I, I, I don't live in New York, so I can't say the experience of living in New York. But uh, you said, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you said the phrase something along the lines of uh, bail reform failed. Um, now, I, the issue I take with that is even when cash bail existed, there was nothing to stop someone who committed a crime or even if they hadn't committed a crime, going back out and either committing another crime or subsequently going on to commit a crime. The only difference between that system 
and a bail reform system is that the people who got to leave under cash bail are the people who had money to pay for it. Like, so bail reform I, I, is you're supposed to, some people may have made a mistake, that happens. Uh, but what's supposed to happen under a bail reform system is that there's an analysis of the individual and the situation and the chances of that individual going back out and uh, committing some kind of crime, whether or not they committed one to begin with, but committing some crime. Is that going to be perfect 100% of the time? No. So uh, we, didn't, we didn't need bail reform for that because we you already had a system in place where the judge was supposed to look at the the, the, the suspect or the person who's being arraigned and make that decision. The judge has always had the ability and then the authority to release someone on their own recognizance. It was not required that the judge assign bail. And what happened, at least in the perception of a lot of New Yorkers, was that now the judge was required to let people off without any bail. And so there was, um, I, I don't, I never understood why we needed to have that at all. We should just have encouraged the judges to say, hey, you know, if it looks like they're, you know, th th it's okay to let them go on their own recognizance, you should do it. But what I was looking at was what about the victims of those crimes? When someone is victimized and the person who gets caught is now back out on the street, let's say, let's say somebody just snatched their purse. Wait, wait let, me finish, let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. Let's say they just had their purse snatched. Okay. Now they got to change all their credit cards, find, get a new driver's license, maybe replace their keys. Um, they, you know, the, the sensation, the feeling of being violated is real. And for them to then go, go about and say, oh, well, the guy just got off, it doesn't give a sense of justice. And, and the, the perception of that rule, which I think was entirely unnecessary because the judge already had the authority to make that decision without it being a thing, oh, we're, we don't, we're not going to... We're not going to make people pay bail. So that's I personally think that's factually correct. It just actually legally correct. The judges were required to post bail, to, to, to impose a money bond to release someone. And the bail reform laws were created to to take to, to make the default position that everyone is supposed to be released on their personal promise to return unless money bail was needed to assure the safety of the public or the return of the defendant for, for, for further litigation. So, so, so it was necessary to do that because, because in New York, where I practiced from time to time, bail was required. Judges okay, you would know that better than me. Didn't have, the ability, didn't have the ability not to impose bail. And as, as Zach said, the only real difference in, in, in a net effect kind of difference is that people who did very bad things and could assure the judge that they would return from trial and maybe not harm anybody because they had the requisite amount of money were out and about. That didn't keep them from committing another crime. It just meant that their money was was up. So, if so, so bail bail reform has not really failed. I, I think what I think what has happened is that people talk about it as though it was inherently failing. Um, there is there there's a there are a number of studies. That, that show the result of crime rates before bail reform was instituted and, and after, uh, recidivism after. Mm -hmm. If you believe that the person who's charged with a crime is innocent until 12 people in a box decide that they're guilty, then causing them to be incarcerated before they that determination is made is problematic from my perspective. Maybe it's because I'm just a defense counsel, but I guarantee you I was a prosecutor for, for a while, so I prosecuted people too.
So, 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 bail reform hasn't has not failed. We, we, what, what we're talking about is the is the elimination of money as mm-hmm. the determinant of whether you get out or not. It's if you are dangerous, if and you look it, like a flight risk, you can still have money bail imposed or be be be, de- be detained without bail. In the District of Columbia, where we got rid of money bail, if you have committed a homicide, if you're charged rather with committing a homicide, you don't get bail. Okay, you don't get out. Okay, and and there's a whole slew of other circumstances that will keep you from getting out, even though we don't require, even though we don't don't provide money bail as a default position. Bail reform it it it, it gets such a bad rap for being the cause of crime, and it's not. It it, it just simply is not. It never has been. So let me yeah. let me let me let's, let's let's also sorry, one, reform. one other big thing. One other big thing is that we've all and. Uh, Professor Cook, you mentioned this a couple of times, but we were all just now talking about bail uh, and bail reform, as have many people arguing against it, uh, as if everyone who is arrested and uh, laid up and put in front of the bail judge to determine if they're going to have it, did what they were accused of. This is a country that is is meant to be built on the proposition that you are innocent until proven guilty. If we operate under the assumption that because you have been put before the bail judge, you committed that crime and therefore to release you is to release a guilty person. For instance, Dr. Blaine, you mentioned the purse snatcher uh, and the, the victim of that. They need justice. They need to have that person behind bars. Well, no, they need the person who stole their purse behind bars. And that is not necessarily the same person who's been brought up before the bail judge. It is actually a greater shame to uh, a greater violation of their need for justice to potentially put someone who did not commit that crime in jail on cash bail that they could not afford and then not look for the actual person who committed it if the person who was arrested was innocent. And yeah, it would be better if we could do that. If we could have that. Trial. I don't like that thinking. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we could have that trial in a, in a, a reasonable period of time um, so that the person who is sure that that's the person who stole my purse, I, I they identified them, I saw their face, I know it was them. Um, you know, if that person, if it doesn't take six months for their trial to come up, where that the person who feels wronged and violated doesn't have to, you know, walk around feeling like feeling terrified. You know, I think the problem with that is that we still have the story of Alicia Browder who spent three years on Rikers Island. The problem is yeah. the story of Khalif Browder, who still spent three years on Rikers Island, a pre-trial detention center, because he couldn't post a bail for the crime he was accused of, which was petty theft, but she was ultimately exonerated. You know, See, that, that's, the, that's just part disgusting. Of with the, I mean, why does it take three mo- three years for that to Because he to couldn't afford that? to buy his freedom. You no, know, when no, we but, talk but about the backlash to bail reform and what talking about earlier with the uh, with uh, media, when we talk about these rises in crimes, like Professor Cook said, the biggest rises in crimes are due to uh, gun policies in red states. But that's not what we see, you know, as a resident of the tri-state area. When, when I turn on eyewitness news with, uh, with the local news, when we talk about crime waves, we don't see white people with guns. We see black people with guns terrorizing old ladies. That's, these are the images that are shown to us. I don't know. I, I see a lot of That's white people is, going to schools and shooting them up. I mean, I, I well, don't When we I talk about crime know. surges, we're not talking, no one ever mentions school shootings. No one ever mentions lax gun policies. We talk about I, crime in, uh, in the inner city. We talk about black people, gangs of black people running around 
because uh, it's more har uh, harassing and terrorizing people. You know, like when no, no, Lee, when Lee Zeldin can talk it's about not, it's, not, uh, it's not more frequent. But but the, but the challenge is that politicians, elected officials, won't fund the justice system at a way that will provide for more speedy trials. We need more That's prosecutors. Yeah. We need more defense counsel. We need more judges. We need more court personnel. We need more various people. If it's funded, then it can move more quickly. And you don't have to have three years waiting for a trial as opposed to six months. But that's but the that would, but would that be done? If you want, if you want justice, as, as we like to say in law school, if you want equity, you got to do equity. So if you want a fair system, you've got to fund it fairly so it can produce a result. You can't underfund it and then criticize it for not functioning well. Are we yeah, doing that on the state level? Like here in New York with Lee Zeldin. If I could state level. State and local level. State and local Hold on. Hold on, guys. Um, I do want to transition. Um, you know, when we're looking at these races, uh, they're very, very close. Let's bring it back closer to home uh, at, in terms of the Senate races, particularly. When you're looking at um, some of the Senate races, you've got Raphael Warnock, the current incumbent, at 37%, right? You've got him, uh, his, I'm sorry, 538 gives him a 37% chance of winning, but they give Herschel Walker a 63% chance of winning. They give John Fetterman a 44% chance of winning, Dr. Oz a 56% chance of winning, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada, 49% chance of winning, Adam Laxalt, 51% chance of winning. Uh, uh, Mark Kelly in Arizona, 67%. This is the one Democrat that has more of a chance, according to 538's polling, of winning against his opponent, uh, Blake Masters, 33%. Uh, Maggie has ha uh, Hassan. Uh, and that race is interesting because the Democrats actually encouraged the Republicans in that state, New Hampshire, to actually choose her opponent, Bolduck, who is an election denier, someone who believes that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Well, Bolduck is at a 28% chance. My favorite Senate race right now is the race in Ohio between Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance. And I say that because I believe Tim Ryan's messaging was right on target with what the Democratic Party nationally could have benefited from. I think that he was doing excellent for a state that has gone Republican since uh, 2016. Um, I want to get your thoughts. Not And it doesn't have to be just the Senate. The House of Representatives as well. I know Virginia's 7th District is looked at as a bellwether. Earlier this summer, we had a, a district race in New York that was looked at as a canary in the coal mine uh, because it usually is kind of like a precursor to how the election will go. And the Democrats won that, that House seat. What elections are you guys looking at across the board? And which, uh, I, if you can, if you're, I guess, brave enough to make some predictions as to how they would go according to based on what you've seen? Anyone can jump. Yeah, Mike, I think we talked about this earlier, but, you know, this has always been an uphill battle for Democrats. Right. And especially in some of these historically red states, when you look at Georgia, uh, when you look at Ohio, I think there was a discussion about Ohio, uh, you know, that race, you know, maybe being close. But if you look at what has taken place over the last few election cycles, you know, you make the argument that Ohio is no longer a swing state. All right. So um, Tim Ryan has, you know, a, a major challenge there. And when you look at Georgia and the fact that Herschel Walker, uh, you know, is competing in the way that he is and he could very very like very likely win that race um it, it says you know not much i don't think about the messaging of the democratic party at the time i think it just talks more about the historical patterns of the way that we vote right so there's, there's this thing you know democrat complacency in, in, in midterm elections you know democrats come out in the general election and presidential elections but you know many times our base uh, you know don't come out um, in the midterm election i think we might be seeing that and then our other disadvantage is the fact that 
you know, we are all, well, Democrats are already in power. I think I'm looking particularly at the race um, as, you know, a, a Texas. I'm looking at the race here in Texas uh, for governor uh, between Beto and Greg Abbott. I think, you know, I'm not looking at it because I don't, you know, I'm not saying I think Beto's going to win. But I, I think when you looked at it a few years ago, during the midterm election, Beto ran against Ted Cruz for Senate. And that was a very, very close race. Right. And that race was close because of the, it said more to me about the turnout of the Democratic Party. Right now, Beto is running against Greg Abbott, and this race isn't near nearly as close, right? So if you know, if I'm here in Texas looking at this, these numbers coming in from Beto and Greg Abbott, and it is nowhere close, then it's telling me that the Democratic Party, like the base voters, are not coming out. They did not come out and show during this midterm election, and that is going to have ramifications across all across the country. Speaking of governors' races, look at Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake and her opponent, um, the Democratic opponent, who didn't even want to debate her, right? Uh, uh, Carrie Lake is a figure that has gotten a lot of attention because a lot of folks are saying that's Donald Trump's favorite candidate in this whole cycle and potentially a running mate, you know, as he's eyeing the 15th of this month, next Tuesday, to make a big announcement, right? Carrie Lake is, is polling pretty steadily at 49.5% ahead of uh, her opponent, uh, Hobbs, at 47.1%. And going back to what we've mentioned in the preface of the show, uh, with uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, even saying that the election in Brazil is rigged, right? Echoing what he heard from Donald Trump just two years ago. And then you've also got the Israeli parliamentary elections, the fourth one in five years. I mean, I'm sorry, the fifth one in four years, where Netanyahu kind of makes this deal with the far right to kind of build a coalition that would put him back in power. A lot of people are wondering, can I have faith in the democratic institutions, right? If Carrie Lake is in charge of the state of Arizona, who and she publicly said, look, if, the, if Arizona goes for Biden, I'm not gonna stand for that. I'm like, what, what, what can we expect, right? Is this just gonna be something where this is gonna be probably the last clear cut election that yes. we'll experience? Yes, because there's a lot of secretaries of states races right now with election deniers being very open, very open. There's a coalition, I forget the name, I think it's called America First for Secretaries of State of just MAGAs, like all across the board running for Secretary of State. And they've said, we're not going to certify for anyone but Donald Trump. And a lot of them are running unopposed. So I think this is this might be one of the last elections, um, presidential midterm that will be fair and of the people's voices to be quite I, I, th th that's pretty apocalyptic type like language to make it we're running unopposed because I mean we're in apocalyptic type times everyone feels that way everyone feels that way and I think we're headed that way no no just because you if if people start accepting elections then wait well what if the army stops accepting the results of elections or like that's how actual like you know collapses like happen but to, to just to just to kind of bring it back to what Mike said, mentioning Brazil, Bolsonaro ultimately conceded power and handed over power. So at the end of the day, society, I think, and I'm hoping and praying, will rise above this. And like you said, these secretary of states, they're not tyrants. They have checks and balances just like the next guy. And if they try to exceed them, ho hopefully they will be prosecuted and they will be then they will be called out. So I just and and we just. So I just wanted to say that like this, I don't see it as that much in doom and gloom. And to cite one example, Bolsonaro has already like transitioned power. So just, 
I just want to throw that into the mix. Unfortunately, history, um, I, I would love to, to have faith in everything that you just said, but history does not necessarily bear that out. And, um, you know, I, it wasn't that long ago in the 1930, 1938, 1939, when the German people thought, oh, this couldn't possibly happen. Oh, everything's going to be okay. Everybody's really, we haven't, you know, educated population. Um, and, and look what happened. I mean, it started with these same, you know, like this and, um, and look where that got us. And it's something that I'm, I'm very sensitive to. Um, because it's part of my history and and you know i just feel like even for the last six years i've been feeling like my grandfather is over my shoulder saying get out get out get out um like he did he fled poland in 1938 and i'm first generation american and i wouldn't be here and most of my family didn't make it because um but my grandfather had the foresight to say, nope, this isn't good. I don't want to just believe everything's going to be okay. And this is the kind of foreboding that precedes something like that when a dictator takes power. And I know that I see the look you've given me, Ish, but I'm going to tell you that my, you know, historically it happens. And I believe this is how it starts. And I think we, we need to find a way to... Who would be the dictator here in this scenario? Well, do we have one yet or no? No, I know and that's the answer I wanted to hear because my, my my point that I have raised against that is that and this is not gonna be a as you can tell, I have a lot of I have I'm I'm you know Mike bring me here to bring the counterpoint. <laughs> but um <laughs> no when it comes to Donald Trump, uh, th th there's a lot of there's a lot of document there's a lot of um articles and things about how he was actually going against the 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 deep state, going against the the what FBI exactly what deep what state? deep state was he going against when you're the president you yeah, are the deep state oh, or no no or, or, or but this like okay I, I understand that's a charge term and I'm sorry for throwing out a charge term because I you know it's like bait in the water but I what I mean by deep state is a mix of that with the blob which Obama has talked about it's just this establishment it's just an establishment that's going to do whatever it wants to do despite elected representatives and Donald because so Donald Trump, the reason it's Donald Trump-ish is yeah, because Donald Trump is the one who would not accept the election results. It's the first time that I know of in our mm. history of the United States that he just refuses right up to now to accept mm -hmm. the election results. And personally, I, I feel like if you don't you play don't, by you the rules, you're not right. allowed to play. Like him not accepting the him not accepting the results. Sorry, I don't, exactly. think, I don't think that is right. He was to say right. that it was stolen from him. He said that earlier this week. But, but people, maybe he's a maybe, but maybe he's guy who genuinely felt that. This is part of what's so concerning is that even in 1860, in 1860, let's did not say that they didn't believe. The election had happened. They just they but they, they did things to try to take power. They did things to try to take, and then they succeeded. Anyway, okay, even that's even back then when they decided we were going to leave the country and form a new one because of how awful we think this election was. They didn't challenge that the election was that. They didn't challenge the results. What they steps did they Donald Trump take yet. to not transition? The power of the presidency to his predecessor. January six. Hello. Okay. Well. Okay. So if you want the legal answer, he tried a scam. One of Trump's attempts to overturn the election in 2020 included a bunch of lawsuits 
with theories that were so ridiculous that his software lost his license to practice law. Then once that failed, then once his his legal attempts failed, he tried to circumvent the law. Once his legal attempts failed, he tried to circumvent the law by... Me, by pressuring by pressuring secretaries of state to overturn election results. That, that might have been illegal. That might have been illegal. That might have been illegal. Donald Trump had actively taken steps by pressuring his vice president, Mike Pence, to not certify under the 12th Amendment, the vice president's responsibility is to re- it's really a ceremonial role, certify the election by counting the votes with both chambers present. That was already the the plan was for that to go forward but pence was supposed to kind of be the roadblock and when pence stood his ground ted cruz served as um the point guard basically to say i'm going to offer up a legal um some kind of legal challenge to not um ultimately overturn the election abruptly but to kind of put a challenge there to muddy the water and to say that there are alternative electors he pressured bill barr in december his, his uh, attorney general, Bill Barr, refused and said that there is no basis for the Justice Department to declare that there was anything fraudulent as it pertained to how Wisconsin conducted its electoral vote count, how Pennsylvania did, or how the state of Georgia did. He pressured Brad Raffensperger, who's currently a candidate for Secretary of State, saying, and there's a, there's a recording of the call saying, I just need 11,000 more votes. Give me a break. He also has actively candidates who are running on his behalf saying that I will overturn the election when our boss gets back into the into the arena. And so all of these things in conjunction metastasized into January 6th, and we still see the overflowing of it now. He refused to accept defeat, and we're seeing that people are campaigning on his refusal to accept defeat, and even and the influence of it exceeds the United States, we, as, in, as, in, uh, as case point in Brazil, Bolsonaro. But I, I do want to also, you know, as we're, you know, I guess, going on with time and also a phenomenon about this election that we haven't touched on is the ticket the effect of ticket splitting um there you know the thing that's fascinating to me is how warnock and herschel walker are so close in polling yet it seems like brian kemp is running away with this election and usually folks vote down you know the down ballot for the straight party right but obviously there are some warnock kemp voters and so in my view, like, what do these two candidates have in common, right? Brian Kemp supports SB 202, right? A bill that has made it increasingly difficult for minorities to vote. It decreased the amount of early the early voting process. It eliminated so what, voting. Now, I, I, don't think that, I don't think that means Warnock-Kemp voters are, are ascendant. I think it means that there are Kemp voters and there are Kemp voters who won't vote for Herschel. I don't think they're Warnock Kemp voters. I think that I think that the reason, the, the explanation from from a very old guy of why this race in Georgia is close is racism, plain and simple. They're not voting for Herschel Walker. They're voting against anything that's not anything that is Warnock, anything that's liberal, anything that's progressive, anything is Democrat. They don't believe Herschel Walker is competent to be. Uh, senator. They don't believe Herschel's stories about what he did and didn't do. Those things are irrelevant. Herschel Walker represents the anti-Warnock, and that's good enough. 
But how, how did you cite racism and then go on to point everything besides race to support that? Because, because, because the majority of the voters in the Republican Party in Georgia are white. They are voting against a black man and voting for a black man who is a tool of white people. Again, if you paint him like that, yeah, okay. No, 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 no. I, I'm not painting him like that. He put himself in that box. But, having, but what if having, you truly having believe lived that? through what, 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 the so-called modern civil what rights movement? His... I've seen that movie more than once. Okay. But what if what if those what if those are his tr truly heartfelt beliefs that he's not a tool? He just happened to align with that white establishment. Then what? It's not about well, who I, I, I what's happening. It's, it's not about him. It's not about him. Why not? It's not what he believes. It's what the people who are voting for him believe. You said he was a tool as if he as if he can't have those heartfelt beliefs he as a black man. Is a tool. He, he, like, he doesn't believe that he's running against. He oh clearly God, doesn't believe what he's running against because of he he paid for an abortion for someone who got pregnant by him. But then his whole campaign was about abortions and making it illegal. And so you can tell that he's just a mouthpiece. He just wants to be famous. A human being is a complicated thing. So I don't think it's that easy to say. You can be a tool and not realize it. Not realize it. I spent I spent eight years in the United States. I spent eight years in the United States Air Force working for the intelligence community. Okay. There are people used by the intelligence community who don't even know they're being used by the intelligence community, okay? They're tools of the intelligence community. All elected representatives are tools. They're Say tools again? for the people. All elected representatives are tools. Tools for the people that the people elect and want to no, use no, no. for okay. their benefit. I'm the most pejorative way possible. Okay. I'm not why. I'm not talking about a facilitator. I'm talking about somebody who is being manipulated. And not realize it. That doesn't make but them bad people. But, but if you use the word, if, that means that if you, manipulated by the, somebody else. But that's the issue with your argument, because if you use the word manipulated, then you're trying to insinuate that he doesn't have those beliefs himself, which all, but, which is not necessarily. It doesn't make any difference what he believes. It doesn't make any difference what he believes. Everything he's ever said. There's evidence that he contradicts every. But a human being is a complicated thing. A human being can like Even, I can I can say I don't like eating cheeseburgers because they bad for me, but eat a cheeseburger. Like human beings are complicated. Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. people get used yeah, Mike, Mike, if we, we take a step back. Sorry, and, and not yeah, if, we, if I can jump in real quick, Professor Cook, if we take a step ahead, back. I, what I think what is really happening here in Georgia is really you know you have to take a look at the demographic there. And I'm talking about the in regards to the political demographic of the type of voters that are there. Um, and I think in Georgia, you have a large percentage of Republican voters who are a lot more moderate. Right. Who, who are um, who do not like Donald Trump. Right. So, so they're supporting Kemp because Kemp stood up against Donald Trump. And these are very moderate, um, rational type of uh, conservatives um, who would not vote for the Republican just because they're Republican. Right. So they wouldn't vote for Herschel Walker just because, you know, they won't just fall in line with that. So I, I can see um, a lot of, you know, um, moderate type of, you know, rational, if you say, you know, Republicans who are who would never support Donald Trump. Right. But they are conservatives and will vote Republican every single year who are behind Kemp, mainly because he stood up to Trump. And they would also would not support Herschel Walker because one, he is a Trump guy. And then two, you know, he's just so outlandish. And he's so incompetent at, at this point uh, that, you know, these type of moderate voters want support him. And I think there is such a large, I think, percentage 
um, in that um, in that state that, you know, that is the reason why, Mike, you are seeing uh, a lot of uh, voters who are voting for Kemp and they're also voting for Walker. I think those are those, I think, suburban type of moderate Republicans who, who are splitting their ticket in that way. So I, I want to also add in because I think one thing that wasn't brought up is that Herschel Walker has no legislative record. There is no legislative record to see where he falls on the political spectrum, because even within conservatism, you have folks who are saying, well, Lindsey Graham should not have made an announcement about, you know, his position on abortion and his ban on like there's there's variations. But where does Herschel Walker stand? You know, there's no there's no political background. He's plucked straight out of the, the, the sports world and placed in this place in this arena to be a candidate. He got Trump's stamp of approval. And he's you compare that to Raphael Warnock who, you know, in all honesty, he didn't have a legislative record, but he still, like his, his politics was more clear as a candidate in 2020. Mm -hmm. um, and now that he does have a legislative record, you know, he brought back the bacon to Georgia as it pertains to the Inflation Reduction Act, as it pertains to the infrastructure bill from last year. And so he has literal, literal legislative accomplishments he can run on. And then when it comes down to abortion, I like his position. I like, And I think more folks should, should uh, in the Democratic Party um, should jump on it in and, and, and conservative states. The, the doctor's room, he says repeatedly, is too small a place for the physician, a woman, and the United States government. And, and I think, you know, that message resonates with folks, you know, who are conservative and happen to be African-American. I think it was cynical for them to put Herschel Walker in there. I, I agree with Professor Cook. I think the whole goal was to kind of split the black vote because they saw that African-Americans came out in droves in 2020 and came out in droves in the runoff in 2021 resulting in John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock's victories. But I think that that would ultimately backfire. Out of all of the Senate races, I think Raphael Warnock is more secure than a lot of Democrats right now, because when you're looking at it, who's who, who do you trust behind the cockpit right now? You know, Herschel Walker, who said climate change is not an issue because we have enough trees or, or <laughs> who actually has a legislative background and, and accomplishments. I want to push back a little bit against the framing that, uh, Herschel Walker was chosen as the candidate where uh, to split the black vote because black voters aren't stupid. It's more so that Herschel Walker was chosen to be the nominee for Georgia so that Republicans could run a black candidate and insulate themselves from claims of racism as they continue to hurl all sorts of smears, excuse me, at Raphael Warnock. We saw the campaign they ran against him in the runoff two years ago where they basically ran the Jeremiah Wright playbook against him and it failed. So I don't necessarily think that was the right option, but it was the you know playbook they ran on anyway. I think they were also betting on his old, his old days of like he was a great football star and that black people or our community really admires people like that. But I, I really hope that Georgians saw through that. Um, I believe that Georgia has a voter suppression problem, not, you know, an agenda problem. So we'll really find out, you know, what what the issues they really care about are. So in that line, in, in that vein, vein, do you think we're likely to see a runoff in Georgia between Warnock and Herschel Walker? And oh, also, why? even among the, the governor's race, we, you know, we kind of lost track of the fact that the whole premise of the question was, why is there a discrepancy between the the Warnock voters and the Stacey Abrams voters, I think Stacey Abrams has been a fantastic, uh, um, you know, person for the Democrats in the South. Remember, before Stacey Abrams, before Beto Rourke, the Democrats were virtually void of any kind of leadership in the South, in my opinion. And she came and was able to deliver the state of Georgia 
with her, um, you know, on the ground work to, to increase voter turnout. Um, she has wiped away the medical debt of so many folks in the state of Georgia. She has sharp answers as to how she's going to get legislative uh, agenda items accomplished in the governor's mansion. I asked her a question in person as it pertains to SB 202, and she was straight up and honest. She said, as it pertains to Medicare, Social Security, I believe I could be more successful um, than I would be in the realm of voting rights. But I do believe that we can get something done to yeah. get SB 202 repealed. I think she's an excellent candidate, but I don't understand why it's not reflected in the polling. Yeah, but Mike, I think it comes down to, you know, the discussion about the, the demographic there. And I, I think when you have a state that is really 50-50 right now, like a very purple state, um, you know, one uh, group of voters can really change, um, you know, the entire landscape there. And I, I think when you look at uh, 2020, when Biden won Georgia, I, I think there was a lot of, like, you know, those moderate type Republicans who decided to vote for Joe Biden. And I, I think, you know, because that was because they did not like Trump. And I think here... Um, Brian Kemp has those voters in his corner deeply, right? So there's, there's not going to be many Republican voters who are going to vote for Stacey Abrams. So I, I think that is the issue that she's running against is that she won't have that swing voter, right? She won't have that swing Republican voter to uh, jump in and, and, and vote for her. So I, I really think that, you know, that race won't really be that close. I, I, you know, I like Stacey Abrams, but, you know, she has a very uphill battle. And I think it's going to be very difficult for her to uh, gain, uh, you know, moderate type Republican voters. I would say let's not forget that Brian Kemp was basically overseeing his own election last time. I'm not trying to be like an election denier or anything like that, but there was a lot of fishy things going on with that last election. So um, I, I don't know. We'll see if it comes around for her this time. So the, it was just announced that Wes Moore, a Democrat, a celebrity author, and former nonprofit executive, has been elected Maryland's first uh, African-American governor. Um, you know, this was an interesting race. Uh, his opponent, uh, Mr. Cox, has been someone who has repeatedly tried to tie him with a far left, just like many other candidates, right? He's, he's for defunding the police. He's for radical leftist agenda. He's for political correctness and wokeness. You know, all of these key phrases... And yet it wasn't enough in the state of Maryland. So he's going to be taking over the governor's mansion after Larry Hogan, a Republican who styles himself in the, in the, in the mold of Ronald Reagan. In the mold of Ronald Reagan. Um, and also, I believe it was also announced that um, uh, Maura Healy was elected in Massachusetts. Anyone's thoughts on this, racist? Well, with Maryland, I just have to point out that Maryland is a solidly blue state. And so when you're a Republican governor in a state like Maryland, you basically have to be a very strong politician who's almost tailor-made for the needs of your state, right? Like with um, Governor-elect Healy now in Massachusetts replaces Charlie Baker, who was a Republican. Uh, you know, Massachusetts is one of those blue states that for whatever reason loves the Republican governors. Uh, Mitt Romney, for example, was governor of Massachusetts before he became a senator from Utah, but uh, you know, this was a. These are the kind of races where, if Republicans want to hold on, they have to find almost the perfect candidate. So it's not necessarily a surprise that uh, uh, Healy was able to kind of uh, win so easily. And same with uh, Westmore. Now, with Stacey Abrams, I do think Westmore, yeah, Westmore ran against a very, very hard to elect Republican. I mean, you're right there's a two to one Democrat to Republican voter registration in the state of Maryland. And um, uh, 
Governor Hogan did a tremendous job in galvanizing a lot of uh, Democratic people to vote for him. That's the only reason he got elected. The guy, Cox, who ran against Wes Moore, was just not that kind of guy at all. Uh, Governor Hogan walked away from him, criticized him, called him insane. Uh, it was it was very, very difficult for him to win in Maryland. That 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 really shouldn't be a surprise. Um, uh, it, it is a little bit of a surprise in Massachusetts because, as you say, uh, uh, they seem to be fascinated with Republican governors in, in a in a fundamentally Democratic uh, registration state. But, you know, so but they don't always do it. And this is one of those times. So and I think. As Rubio. far as a little bit of history, though, I also have to mention that Rebecca Bailent of Vermont was just elected to Congress, which makes her the first woman elected to Congress from Vermont, which means okay. that a woman has been elected to Congress from every single state in this country, which is history making in and of itself. And Marco Rubio was reelected. This is a race I saw going in the direction of the Republicans. Marco Rubio is reelected. Ron DeSantis is reelected. Um, Marco Rubio, of course, had presidential ambitions. And of course, now that Trump has sucked up all the oxygen in the room and he set the date, November 15th, he said, you're going to be very, very happy to his audience. Um, you know, and he kind of sucked up all the oxygen for who he called uh, Ronda Santimonious, a uh, new nickname he came out with for uh, his uh, closest rival. Have, but you seen, have you seen DeSantis campaign ad that that says God chose him to do this? Oh, God. I mean, it's, you know, I think, I think, well, in the church I grew up in, that would be just facially offensive. You just couldn't, can't do that. Yeah. 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 So as we're landing the plane, I do want to ask you guys, is it a sign of weakness or strength that Trump is planning to announce a third bid for the White House this early, November 15th? Strength, I think, because he wants to suck all the air out of the room, right? You announce early, you're a guy like Trump, you can win with only 40% of the vote, and you get a lot of the losers basically out of the race early, right? You know, Tom Cotton, for example, just announced that he wasn't running. Of course, no one was really asking Tom Cotton to run for president <laughs> anyway. But when you are a long shot guy, and you know from now that a person like Trump is running, it says there's no point. So your other, you know, one or two percent candidates, your Nikki Haley's, your Mike Pompeo's, now's your time to say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't run for president. Maybe it's time for me to start running for vice president instead. Do, do, do you think um, DeSantis has a good chance against Trump? Nate? Yeah, I think I think he does. Oh, he asked you, but I think I, he'll uh, do no, a no, solid no. job, but I don't think he's yeah. going to win. Remember, Trump won in 2016 with about 45 percent of the vote. You, you don't need I, a majority in the Republican Party's. Uh, primary think, apparatus. It would be great so, if they both ran at the same time, and then they would yeah. split the vote, and then neither one would win. But I was just saying, if they both cancel each other out, maybe someone like a Liz Cheney could uh, emerge. In the, I would in the vote. Way. I don't know. I mean, she would certainly be a breath of fresh air. She's, but. she's well, done. The other question is, if two, if two different election deniers run against each other and they both lose, what happens then? <laughs> <laughs> so, conundrum. One thing we haven't discussed also is the, the influence of billionaires, right, in this election. Uh, when you're looking at this midterm cycle alone, I look at yeah. billionaires like George, George Soros allocated $128.5 million for the Democratic Party, but you also have a, lot of yeah. you have a lot of Republican donors. You've got Richard uh, Yulheen, uh, $80.7 million. Um, you have Kenneth Griffin, $68.6 million for the Republicans. 
Jeff Rick Yass, Caruso, a hundred million. Right, Jeff Yass, forty-seven point million. Let's not and this is also donated Twitter oh. to the entire. And we please forget Elon Musk. But <laughs> um, this is also this is the result of Citizens United. Of course, Citizens United overturned us. Uh, you know, decades of of regulations that pertain to how much money could be uh, allocated for political campaigns. Now, political campaign is, I mean, political contributions are equ uh, equated to free speech. And so we're going to see more Ooh. of this as- Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, Ishmael, go ahead. We got social media, we got, we got people, well, it's just that that, that that statement just caught me a little bit off guard as something that, that was a, a very grand one. Let me let me refine that a little bit. Corporate okay, put donations are regarded yeah, as sorry, I should have I should have, I should have qualified that. Corporate. No, but, 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 no. corporations yeah. but, but, donations are equated to free speech. Thank you. If Nate. I can take one point of solace though from money is that big money can be defeated. You know, two years ago we watched Mike Bloomberg spend five hundred million dollars of his own money to run for president, and all he got out of it was the American Samoa Caucus. So, you know, big money can be defeated if you work hard enough. Well, I think and, it's but, not 100% yeah. fair because what I what I remember, and I could be wrong, is that Bloomberg decided not to run because he was afraid he was going to take too many votes from the Democrats and that that would just sort of, you know, produce by default a Republican win. And so he well, decided, you know, for the good, that's how it was presented, for the good of well, the no, nation, he wasn't going to run. Um, no, no. Yeah. Also, Biden up. was going, if you remember, if you remember until he only got American Samoa and, and in the primaries, and then he dropped out. And if you remember, that the timing in which Bloomberg dropped into the race was November, I believe, of 2019, mm -hmm. late in the game. And the reason why he jumped in so late was because people were saying, you know, Biden doesn't look too hot in, in terms of polling. The, I, I was supporting Biden. And a lot of people were laughing, saying, you know, you got to pick a, a different racehorse. And I said, well, just hold on until South Carolina. But at the time, it looked like Bloomberg was the safest bet for those who are in Wall Street who wanted a centrist. Uh, who Mike, would... you're traumatizing me, Mike. You're traumatizing yeah. me. No, but what, Mike's saying, what, second, what Mike's saying is, is true. There was, you know, I think a few weeks where Mike Bloomberg had a legitimate route to that nomination no. because Biden did not look good at all. Um, you know, he didn't he wasn't strong coming out of Iowa um, and, you know, New Hampshire. Uh, so, you know. South Carolina, when he went into that race, that who was who was beating race. him in those states. Who was that, Bernie that, that, Sanders? That's why I'm trying to. No, he did not. not look, wait, no, he did not Bernie win those. those he did not win those states. Mike, Bernie won Iowa, Nevada, it's, and it's, New Hampshire, it's, Jerry. No, why did not win those? Bernie won Nevada by like forty why points. Did, why didn't? Why wait, didn't no, the Bernie black... Sanders did not win Iowa. Pete oh. won Iowa. Just to be very clear about that, Pete won Iowa. Um, and you know, so like, you know, you can. We're going to talk about facts ish. Let's let's talk about the facts. Right, because Pete won Iowa. The Bernie did well in you know New Hampshire, uh, but as usual, when it came down to the South and to Black voters, uh, he was rejected again. Why? That's uh, what I really want to know because I feel like Bernie oh, had the there's, best. There's a many reasons why we can have the discussion. It was, but, 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 familiarity with, with, with black voters. Biden had that as what? vice as Obama's vice president for eight years, but we're not here to relitigate Who had 2020. The best Who, why did? Why wasn't our congressional Black Caucus pushing the best policies for the Black community? Because remember that the priority in 2020 was who could beat Trump, not who was going to have the best policy. And 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 the members of the caucus didn't believe Bernie had was was articulating the best policies because they didn't believe Bernie's policies would ever come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So it, it, that's why Bernie is not really a warm and fuzzy guy. Okay, 
and 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 he didn't connect with the members of the caucus. He didn't connect connect with black voters generally. He connected with some, but not generally, not a big enough clip. And and people didn't think that he was going to be able to do what he said he want, he was going to do. That's okay. I mean, every politician has to offer themselves and their policies, and people accept them or reject them. Bernies were rejected. Now, you know, the, the as you said earlier, Ish, just because he was saying that stuff doesn't mean he was all wrong. Just because he was saying that stuff and was rejected doesn't mean he was wrong. It just means people didn't want to accept it, and that happens. Yeah. yeah. He was also the very, way, very far. I would, like to, was, like, I would like to just mention something because we mentioned Citizens yeah. United, uh, and particularly knowing uh, this, uh, some of the words that this court used uh, in the Dobbs decision about uh, egregiously wrong decisions. Uh, Citizens United didn't just overturn a law that had been in place for 20 some years. It overturned uh, over 200 years of precedent because in the Dartmouth case, back in John Marshall's time on the Supreme Court, they said corporations are not people. Not people. <laughs> Citizens United said they were. 200 years Sound later, like John Marshall got it wrong. Well, how come, how come the people aren't making the elected representative get it right? Well, I mean, you can't get it right until you amend the Constitution, according to Citizens United. Citizens United says mm. the Constitution prohibits this because corporations are people and therefore need to be treated as people under the Constitution. You have to change the Constitution. That says no, no, you don't. Yeah, you do. For Supreme or, Court opinions or, or, on constitutional opinion, on I'm going to tell you how you could do it. Only elect presidents who are going to appoint justices or make your Congress pack the court to change. The people have the power to do whatever they want to do and through a multiple means in this country. Very naive. That's already problematic right there. You know, naive that the people got control. Like, educate. No, 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 no. I would love to see court expansion too. But with court expansion, we need a strong Democratic majority. In both houses of Congress, that's going to be that's willing right. to do that. Franklin Roosevelt had a, a huge majority in the Congress and couldn't pack the court. Okay, mm -hmm. that's right. I'm talking. About, I'm, I'm well, to be fair to FDR, he also the got the lie? court the, the to do what he wanted. What is the buck lie? The buck lie with the electorate, with the citizenry of the United States of America. So I just don't want to ever put too much blame on one elected official when they are elected by the people, and if the people could, in, you know, engage with their civic responsibility at a higher level, I think a lot of these issues would get solved in a so I wanted, more complete way. I wanted to say that this is why our elections are so important, why democracy, I feel like, is in danger, is because when you have the secretaries of state that are running unopposed, that are election deniers, I really don't think it matters who the dictator is going to be. Because the president is there. Donald Trump has already started the election denying. And anyone who comes after him will know, hey, if I follow this strategy, I can sow discord within this country. And I think that, you know, with, with, that, with that happening, it, it doesn't matter who the dictator is. It doesn't matter because you see in Brazil, you know, the strategy is being used again. And if this is constantly being brought up of our elections aren't fair, our elections are being rigged, you know, there's there's going to be people who aren't smart enough to see through that. If they keep hearing that our elections aren't fair anymore, they're not going to think that any elections in the future are going to be fair. And so, they won't vote. Yeah, exactly. So this, I feel like this is, this is. Yeah, the, we have the structure. voter turnout. And I don't think it's apocalyptic. I think it's the reality. 
So we actually, we don't have huge voter, voter turnout. We have comparative. I thought that's what Mike said. No, we have yeah. comparatively yeah. huge voter turnout. The voter turnout in this okay. country is still abysmal. Yeah. Absolutely abysmal. I think it's under 60%. Yep. As a general, oh, general yeah. proposition. No, I would so, agree. So, yeah, that, so to Ish's point, if the citizens yeah. want to take control of their government, more than 60% of them have to vote. That's a fact. Unfortunately, Dr. Cook, I don't think most citizens want to be bothered. They just want somebody else to tell them what why to not? do. Why not? But if they know the gravity of what, of their, of what they're being asked to do, why wouldn't they want to be bothered? I, you and I would like to be bothered, but most people, I think, just they just want things to just go on. And No, no I think it's more to what Dr. Cook just said. Why, why would anyone want that? No, I think you're using the word want when it means that they're not a, a, aware of, the, they're not abreast of the full situation. They don't comprehend what's going on. I, I disagree with you. I think that most people just want to live their life and have everybody leave them alone and they don't want to get involved. And it's, you we know, we all live in a world, it's a social contract. What do you mean? Like, we, we have, unless you want to, you're not people for contracts all the time ish. People break contracts. No, no, but, 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 but there's a doctor. But most people are lazy when it comes to that. But you don't want people to take the active role in their own governance. No, 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 no. She's not arguing that she doesn't want them to. She's saying that's where they are. Yeah. Now, exactly. The question is, how do you get them from that place to okay. where they need to be? But it's not, it's not that that's a good thing. It's, it's that not a good thing. It's a terrible are. thing. It's a terrible oh, thing. I, 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 Part of the issue I, I, I is also that it is incredibly difficult to vote in this country. There are that's many other idea. countries yeah. in, in the, we, yeah. you know, the Western world, the democratized world, it is illegal not to vote. And therefore, anyone, everyone not only is required to vote, but they are inherently given the opportunity to vote that works into their day. In this country, it is on a Tuesday during work, mostly work hours. A lot of people have to choose between do they get their paycheck for the day, do they keep their job, or do they go to vote? I was lucky, I'm lucky enough to have an employer who was very happy to hear that I was probably coming in late this morning so I could go vote. Not everyone has that situation, and it's mm -hmm. frankly ridiculous. Uh, my, also, uh, even with the increase in, in mail-in ballots that happened recently, my father, for no reason whatsoever, was denied a mail-in ballot. That wasn't supposed to happen in Pennsylvania this time around, but it did. He did not get the chance to vote uh, by mail-in. He had to vote in person. Um, but uh, it is also, it is, it is just, it, it's ridiculous, especially when you talk about a civic duty and that it is something that is necessary for this country to function. Not only is it made difficult to vote for people who are put on the rolls, it's made incredibly difficult for people to be on the rolls to begin with. Right. And I think so also, in New York, you're required, you you're required to have four hours off during the day to go vote, but I don't know that they're required to be paid. And then you have to explain to your employee, yeah, yeah, we're all going to vote. And, you know, so there's, there's a lot of, you know, pushback that you're going to get from your coworkers. Oh, you're going to be gone for two and a half hours. You know, like what's going on? So um, it's not an easy thing to exercise, even though you have the right to do it. I think okay. also we but, have but the it's, problem. It's worth it. It's, it's worth it, though. And and just one caveat: we, we need we need educated voters, not just voters. And we exactly. need and to have and have education. Exactly. We need we need institutions that are not subjected to baseless ideology but what do you think and, and also have, have educated voters you have to have people who are willing to keep an open mind about other people and to let information in and not just to become educated about yeah, the things that they're interested in yeah you're saying of i wouldn't course, consider that really, education but that's yeah. not unfortunately my experience of the world is that most people only learn about the things that they think they're going to agree with and they don't there's a lot of people out there that don't let 
other ideas in and they're not we're really making a strong argument for dictatorship right now <laughs> I, I know it's, i think it's, we have two problems with i actually issues. wrote an apocalyptic book i wrote a dystopian <laughs> fiction and i hope it never comes to pass we have the issue number one where we have uh several people both active politicians and candidates who see long lines on election day as a as an inherently good thing but that's a problem because when you have to stand in line for hours to vote, that means that, like Zach said, that's an hour where you're not getting paid. That's an hour where you have to find childcare for your children if you're not able to have them in line with you. It's an hour effectively where it's harder to vote. We also have the issue of now we have in to stand many. In line. Mm -hmm. We also have the issue of that. sorry uh, gerrymandering. You know where you've got districts where that are drawn so artistically and creatively that there's really that your vote doesn't matter anyway because it's so skewed one way or the other so if you're a voter on either side you say hey what's the big deal you know this person's gonna win anyway why why does my my voice and my vote don't matter you know when you're a democratic voter in you know the upper west side you don't feel that same pressure to vote that a voter in Cobb County Georgia does because you know that you know, your guy's going to win no matter what. Yeah. You know, House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy and his team have been working on a victory speech for the last couple of weeks. Um, and they're remaining extremely confident that they will take back the House. Uh, I, I recall a speech in which Mc, uh, McCarthy said, I, I want you to see Nancy Pelosi hand me that gavel. Uh, he's, you know, while he's prepared the remarks, he's expected to riff a bit as well. His team expects he may take the stage at 11 p.m. tonight. Um, if you know, things go as they expect. Um, it's also expected that Re Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel and potentially former House Speaker Newt Gingrich could speak as well tonight. And, you know, that that aside, I think the Democrats had a huge, a great record to run on. You know, they bought, they bought a lot of popular bills into fruition. And this is during a summer when, you know, remember, we were talking about Manchin and cinema stalling Biden's agenda just a few months ago. Um, all of a sudden, Chuck Schumer gets mentioned in a room and they come out with the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Um, the Republicans thought they had Manchin at a lockbox. They thought he wasn't good. He was going to kind of be their, you know, fire in the hole. And now they, they said they were going to try to stall uh, agreements as it pertains to the PACT Act. That backfired on them when you had people like Jon Stewart blasting them, putting them on full blast about the hypocrisy of not supporting the veterans who had exposure to burn pits. And so they had a lot of things going for them heading into this fall. Um, my only criticism for the Democrats would be that a lot of the things that they did at the end, I'm, I'm worried if it's going to be too little too late. The focus on Biden saying, if we get in, we're going to make codifying Roe versus Wade a top priority. I think he should have done that June 25th, the day after the Dobbs decision. Um, Obama coming in, you know, who's probably the only Democrat right now polling above water, um, coming in and, you know, you know, really just, you know, doing great things in terms of getting the vote out for Georgia's and Pennsylvania, I think he should have been on the trail earlier. You know, he should have been out at least by late September or early August. I mean, he, he should have been out more, I think. Um, that's just my take. I think no matter what happens, we're not going to see a wave. I think that the record turnout coupled with the polarization is going to result in someone taking the majority, but I don't think it's going to be a huge wave, like a lot of pundits are saying. Um, this is not a normal midterm. Um, you can even compare this midterm to 2018, right? Because we didn't have an insurrection <laughs> in 2017. Right. Hillary Clinton conceded the next day. Um, 
but we're not seeing that here. And and then you couple that with the news that Trump is making an announcement. Trump might as well announce today. I mean, he already announced he's running for president. It's just a formality, you know, to have the specific day. And there are there are a lot of Republicans afraid that he might rain on their parade as it pertains to their plans for this this election. But I think a lot of people may have been motivated by his potential announcement to say, listen, I see where this is going, and I want to make sure that the Democrats are in power to ensure that Trump's agenda is not enacted and that the ground is not laid for him to come back and make a triumphant return. Could be. Donald Trump you know, fundamentally elected uh, Reverend Warnock in, in Georgia because of his antics there, and he may do damage to his so-called Republican colleagues with his current antics. Hard to know, but we'll, we'll see later tonight and in, in the coming days. What concerns me the most, I think, is that if, you know, is that should Democrats, you know, lose their majorities of, of uh, in Congress, uh, what we, the reaction we see from uh, Democratic, members of the Democratic caucus on all wings of the faction saying we lost because we focused too much on social issues, you know, too much on abortion, too much on trans rights, too much on black rights, as opposed to, you know, pointing the finger at the very real problems that it takes courage to address. And when I say all sides, I, you mean, I mean everyone from your Abigail Spanbergers and Joe Manchins, even to your Bernie Sanders. It's, that's what, you know, concerns me the most. And, and so, sorry, Nate, just to be clear, you said you hope they don't do that? I, I hope they don't do that, but they probably will. Okay. That's what, you know, upsets me. Yeah. Uh, I would agree. I would agree. But that's but that's that's one of the that's the huge challenge of the so-called Democratic Party is that the, the diversity of thought, the diversity of interest, the diversity of points of view within that party is much less hom- is much less homogenous than the Republican Party. And so you get these people saying these things because that's that's what they believe philosophically, personally. Then the media creates this echo chamber of Democrats in disarray. And it feeds itself and it looks like Democrats are in disarray. But just as you said, with with the the the, the, the president's legislation, it, it was media talk, oh, they'll, they'll never get it together. They're going to fall on their face. Joe Manchin is 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 a Republican in, in, in Democrats closing. And that never really was the case in terms of the reality of it. But that's that's what everybody was talking about. And and so I think it's going to be difficult, but but I think that's that's part of the both the strength and the weakness of the so-called Democratic Party um, is that this is the, this diversity of thought. It, it's a challenge, you know, and, and back from my day, you, you talked about it, but it's, it's the same party that could have Ted Kennedy and, and Richard Shelby as members of the party. That, that's just insane. But that that's what it was. Yeah. And, and, and Mike, if I could take just one second earlier, just to, you know, give myself a a clarification at the end of the episode. When I said Trump versus deep state, I wasn't basing that based on some Fox News Tucker Carlson reporting. I based that on things I read by Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald, stewards of traditional investigative journalism, um, exposing the right and the left. So, and they made cogent arguments, but like many things, or like a few things that happened in pop culture that that CM, MSNBC or others in, of their kind may try to paint as straight conspiracy theory, like the origins of the COVID pandemic, like Hunter Biden's laptop. Like we need to start calling out these democratic players who try to alter reality. And then when they're shown to be 180 degrees incorrect, it's just like, okay. So I don't know, I just wanted to put that in there. Sorry, not to muddle really the water. Quick, really quickly, I wanted to say, I think that Democrats 
um, really should focus on a lot more um, areas in the country. A few of us went to school in Alabama, Oakwood University, and I had the pleasure of running a voter registration drive and a lot of voting drives there. And I found that there's a lot of areas that Democrats just don't tap into. Like we mentioned earlier, Georgia, who has a voter suppression problem. That's very true within the South. And, you know, Huntsville, Montgomery, Birmingham, those are all Democratic heavy areas. So I think that if this party can really focus on um, driving out the extra 40% that are just asleep, that don't really seem to care, um, to not focus on polarizing things as much and just talking about the freedoms that we deserve and, you know, the the things that um, the dreams that our founding fathers had for us, then, you know, we could really pull it out and and make this country better. So on that note. So yeah. I do think a takeaway from tonight will be the DNC's. The DNC is going to start kicking itself tomorrow morning, I think because they really should have poured some more money into Tim Ryan's race. I think they should have invested more in Val Demings. I, I had Dr. Will Boyd on the program and he was talking about, you know, everyone's talking about all these races. What about me in Alabama? You know, that at least helped me make this a competitive race. Um, that <laughs> coupled with the fact that I think Fetterman should have put, he should have tried his best to move focus away from his sickness mm -hmm. and more on Dr. Oz's lack of a legislative agenda and, 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 where he is on abortion. I think there was too much attention on whether or not he's going to debate, whether or not he's, you know, fit, whether or not he's okay. Uh, he should have worked harder to change that narrative. But that being said, are there any other closing thoughts before we... I, I would just say what you just said. You know, a long time ago, Andrew Young said this about the Democratic Party apparatus, the, 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 the superstructure. That is that it's the province of a very small group of people who think they know everything about everything. He used another words, other words I won't use right here, but they they run it and they make the decision that Ms. Toombs talked about about just throwing away certain segments of the of the population. They're not worth our time to try to get them to vote because we think we can get it done by by getting vote out in Chicago or New York or Los Angeles, and 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 Tim Ryan is a perfect example. They should have invested in Tim Ryan but they didn't spend any money on Tim Ryan. They should have invested in, in, in Val Demick. Now, I don't think Val would have really won, but I think it would have been a different race, a closer race, and they could have done more damage, I think, to ultimately to, to, to Rubio. But, but, but the smart Alex, the guys who know everything, and these are mostly guys, they think they know everything, and they decide who the winners and losers are internally to the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And I think that serves as a larger detriment to the, to the, to the Democrat Party writ large because these guys have these eastern coastal views of, of the world and they don't see the the country that's not there and, and and in those places and that's a problem and and you know and that's why they that's why you have to go through this thing every every two or four years analyzing what we did wrong and never really solving the problem they don't they don't spend any money in the black community or the hispanic community or the asian community until six months before the election where is the investment on an ongoing basis yeah. where's the investment that that will produce the results that you want as opposed to saying i got a bunch of big-headed consultants i'm going to spend money on them and they're going to do radio buys and that'll convince black people to vote for you yeah Not, mike yeah also you know, I, I, agree, I agree professor cook professor cook I, you know I, I agree with you but you know what what happens after every single election you know happened after 18 20 94 96 after the election 
you know, we have to find somebody to blame. We're going to blame the DNC. We're going to blame the money over here. We're going to blame somebody for not going to a county or going to the state. But at the end of the day, you know, Mike, we talk about the, the persons running Alabama. It could just be the people of Alabama are more, you know, Republican, right? And, and those people are more passionate, let's say, who are Republican. They come out and vote. The people in Ohio might, you know, might like J.D. Vance more, right? Now, I, I think when we get into those little critiques, I, I think there's merit there when the elections are very, very close, when it's like, you know, 49 or 51%. But in some of these races where there is a 10-point difference you know, it's it's it, you know we can go into Monday morning quarterbacking and put a blame here and this, but at the end of the day, it's up to the voters. I mean, that's a great thing about democracy. You know, it's it's up to us, and I think people will speak, and people are going to speak uh, tonight, and we'll see what America looks like tomorrow morning. I think one other thing, just to sort of piggyback off of both of those, if I may, real quickly, is uh, the Democratic Party also has a real problem with over trusting certain demographics to just be loyal. We particularly saw that Say in 2016. <laughs> we particularly saw that in. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. I'm sorry. Well, the, the biggest example I was thinking of, although yes, the biggest example I was thinking of was the blue belt or uh, the the rust belt uh, was lost in 2016. As I recall, Hillary Clinton didn't bother campaigning in three rust belt states uh, because she assumed, and the Democratic Party assumed that uh, that part that uh, those states were going to stay blue and they didn't uh, because uh, frankly a lot of people have been taken for granted as solid voters and uh, Democratic Party is really it really still hasn't learned its lesson about that uh, and, and I would argue that it's not just that being taken a grip advantage is uh, they would see that they're being aggressed upon that they're being dictated to things guys this truth that is really ideology mm-hmm. oh yeah i wanted to I, i'm not going to say their name party to say that it's the the party of the working class and then also uh when working class people uh say oh well i'm losing my job in the mine well we're not going to go do coal anymore so get a job in just get a job in solar if you if you don't uh you know actually address right. or, or learn how to code learn how to code or something yes. for, yeah yeah all sorts of whatever yeah. it is yeah uh there's yeah. just a dismissiveness that happens in the democratic party a lot that is very troubling yeah i always push back zach on, on that issue in 2016 about, about hillary not coming within the last week or two to wisconsin to the rust belt the thing is in 2016 look that election was 24 7 coverage for like over a year it was you couldn't escape it and if, if you didn't vote for hillary if you were in Wisconsin, you you weren't gonna come and vote for her because she came to your your city a week before the election because people was gonna come those those rallies is gonna be her Hillary supporters. So it's like after that year that were we were just engulfed with Trump and Hillary every single day. If you're saying after that full year, um, I'm not gonna vote for her because she didn't come to my my state in the last week. I don't know what she stands for. I, I think it's kind of I'm not saying I'm not saying that that if she had come, everyone would have suddenly voted for, for her or for the uh, Democrats. But the fact that she didn't bother showing up helped reinforce thought, uh, feelings in people that she and the Democratic Party didn't really care. And it depressed and turnout as well. Is that wrong? The depressed turnout, too. If two more voters per precinct had shown up in Wisconsin, she would have won that state. 
But I think, first off, uh, I, I do have to push back against your working class point, Zach, because when we say working class, who do we really mean? Democrats tend to clean up among voters making less than $100,000. So we're talking about a very specific subset of the working class that looks a certain way. And, you know, these guys are not voting for Trump based on Trump's view of, you know, international security and the Iran nuclear deal. They're, you know, it's other reasons. But I think the big lesson that has to be taken for Democrats is never to take a voter for granted. You know, Republicans are campa campaigning and evangelizing everywhere. There's a, you know, there's a lot of talk about Gen Z. Oh well, event spreading your news. That's what evangelizing okay. is. Okay. But, you know, and there's a lot of talk about Gen Z being <laughs> a very blue demographic. Gen Z, the social media Gen Z uses the most is TikTok. And the biggest accounts on TikTok, TikTok are, are predominantly conservative influencers. There's not that Why? big. Uh, because Democrats have not bothered to build a presence there. You know, or we, one message resonates more than the other, and we have to ask what. Well, are it's the not real just about message discipline; it's also about presence. You have to be willing not, to throw things at the wall before you see what sticks. Everything isn't so like we, like people actually want to be able to feel like what what they're being told is reality. It does, you know, correspond with their day to day life. And the Democrats who also have, have you asked have to people try to not something do that. until you find something that resonates and Democrats spend, tend to spend a lot of time trying to find the nice, perfect thing that's going to resonate with the left and the centrists and the suburban moms and the Reagan Republicans and all of them. And you while said, Republicans you said the DeSantis did that? I said re Democrats in general have okay. a tendency to kind oh, of I'll try to find these focus group things. But what yeah. should have been very clear for a while is that Democrats need to be able to invest in their core constituencies and not be able to take them for granted. Whether it's the Hispanic vote in South Florida and along the border, whether it's the Asian vote in the Northeast and out West, and whether it's black voters who have been neglected what, by the party for a what, very what, what long is, time. What if the Democratic Party and these people have ideological differences? That's what I'm getting at. Do you think that happens or no? That does happen. Electorates shift, okay. priorities shift, and list shift, and landscapes shift. Mm -hmm. But if the Democratic Party wants to maintain its viability, then it has to be able to keep those voters in the fold. Or they have to change. That's the. I just feel like I'm not hearing that from your end. As it's, it's almost like they have to do something to. I don't know. I, I may be hearing. Maybe yeah. I may be putting things on too. This was a really when you when you're a leader, you 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 you, you have to you, you can be there's all, all kinds of leaders. But if you're going to present an agenda to people and try to persuade them that that agenda is good for them, then you have to convince people that it is good for them. Now, the people may reject your agenda. They may say, you know what, that's really not what I want out of my life for good, bad or in different reasons. They may choose to make that decision. And then you as a leader have got to figure out, do I want to continue to push my vision of the world or am I going to embrace the people I want to lead's vision and try to help them push, try to help them actualize their vision. And it's, 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 a, it's an iterative process. There is a give and take in this. And you can't just dictate, we used that word a couple of times before, you can't just dictate to people and expect them to follow you. You've got to give them a reason to, 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 to win their hearts and minds. You've got to figure out a way to do that. And that may mean, well, you know, I think I'm pushing a tax policy of, 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 of a 37% tax rate and the people don't want that, maybe I got to move it to 25. I don't know, but you got to sort of have that conversation with people. But you can't do that if you're not there with them 
talking with them, not talking to them. And, and I think, you know, it's amazing how DeSantis' Latino support grew in spite of the, the, the stunt he pulled by shipping all of those Venezuelan migrants up to the Northeast, up to Martha's Vineyard. I think, you know, to kind of tie up what everyone was saying, that's just uh, evidence further of kind of you know, that, that, that disconnect that the Democrats may have with that demographic, right? But the disconnect that I have with, the, with that poll is how, how are they able, what, what specifically are they able to um, point to to rationalize that support? But, you know, there's so many different parts at play, so many different moving uh, items in this election. Um, and I'm so glad to have had each of your minds represented on a night like this. This is one of the most spirited discussions I think we've had on this platform. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, we're able to walk away and learn from each other. And I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of. So I'm thankful to you, Zach, Professor Cook, Tia, Nate, Jerry, Dr. Blaine, Ishmael. Thank you each for what you bought to episode 82 of the Political Mike podcast. We went over uh, by a lot, but I just want to thank you. This was a special election episode, a special edition. Um, tune in. I hope you all voted. Um, as I encourage you every week, refrain from sketchy sources of news and challenge the sources of news that you do plug into. With that being said, that, let me conclude episode 82, episode 82 of the Political Mike podcast. Thank you all so much. Mm -hmm.